0: Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is The Real Guy Podcast. This is Captain Jeff and welcome to The Real Guy Podcast. This is an exciting day for me because we are on episode 100 for The Real Guy Podcast. And um, one of the things I did when I started the podcast is um, I wanted to do it for a year and I wanted to see how well it would go and how I liked it and how the audience would uh you know enjoy the podcast and i gotta tell you it's been absolutely phenomenal um one of the funnest things one of the better things that i've done in a long time so thanks for uh tuning in to the real guy podcast let me get the sponsors out of the way this week big week for the boatyard in fort lauderdale they're going to reopen after this covid crap The small business guy in Fort Lauderdale will be able to reopen, so make sure you get a chance to go by the boatyard in Fort Lauderdale. You can go by boat or you can go by car. Nice place. You won't be disappointed. Also, Waypoint TV. Um, Waypoint TV hosts all the uh, podcast episodes. Big fan of Waypoint TV. And our newest sponsor, Kettle and Fire. Uh, Kettle and Fire makes bone broth, makes classic soups, keto soups, and if you're into a healthy gut, if you're into more of a healthy lifestyle, if you're one of these people that are looking for healthy alternatives, Kettle and Fire is for you. You can get a 15% discount. All you have to do is use the promo code WAYPOINT. So thanks, Kettle and Fire, for being part of the show. And um, order something from Kettle and Fire if you're into that kind of stuff. 15% off, and all you have to do is use the promo code WAYPOINT. Um And the last thing uh, before we get started in the 100th episode of the Real Guy Podcast is um, give us some ratings and reviews on Apple. Um, Those ratings and reviews go a long way. And um, if we're going to compete in the podcast world, right now anyway, that's the way to get it done. If you like the podcast, give us a five-star rating and give us a good review, and it goes an awful long way. Now today being the hundredth episode, it also is going to be the last episode in the mentor series. And um, today's episode is about my dad. It's about my old man. He was a special person and he still is. And um, thanks to him, I've been able to really excel in the fishing world, I look at it a totally different way, and um, this episode is going to be about my old man. See, in the mid-70s, I think it was 1975, maybe, um, my old man was basically a workaholic up in the Boston, New England area, and he had a chain of dry cleaning stores. And he basically woke up every day and was a slave to the dry cleaning chain but it was you know it, it made a lot of money and uh he was obsessed with it and um threw a lot of hard work you know he made a lot of dough in the dry cleaning business and um bought his first Grady White in like 1975 and the reason they bought the Grady White is because um my dad being such a workaholic um my mom basically told him, she said, if we don't start doing things other than work, that she was going to leave him. She was going to go back to South Georgia. See, my mom was, grew up in the country down there in South Georgia, met my old man in Panama City. My old man was a Green Beret in the Army. And um, in Panama City, they were down there partying when he was on leave or whatever. And he met my mother, and uh, they hit it off. And uh, my mom moved up to Massachusetts with him and um, basically took the ride with him through the dry cleaning business. But as my dad developed this crazy work schedule and was obsessed with the work, my mom gave him the ultimatum. says, we got to start doing something together. So back then, the YMCA was a big deal. And um, they met some people that were doing a dive class at the YMCA getting their certification so they could scuba dive so my mom thought that'd be the perfect release for for them maybe you know at least in the summertime when it warmed up and people were joining the outdoors out there in New England that they would start scuba diving so they did and when they first started scuba diving they would take the car around and find little coves and swim off the beach and see what they could see, and they started to collect Maine lobster, you know. And at that point, there was a lot of lobster out there. But they noticed that um, most of the lobster that they could access through the beaches were the smaller ones. And um, that inspired my dad to get his first boat. So he went out and he bought a, uh, I think it was a 28-foot Grady White or a 26-foot Grady White, but it had a little cabin in it. And me and my brother and my sister and my mom would load up in the Grady White, and he got a slip down there at Cape Ann Marina. Cape Ann Marina in Gloucester are the same marina that you see on the new Wicked Tuna show. I say new Wicked Tuna show, it's been around for like 10 years already, but still kind of new. But the Cape Ann Marina was a cool place, and we kept the uh, Grady White there, and my dad and my mom you know, really got into the scuba diving stuff. And um, really got good at getting a lot of lobster, like more lobster than you could imagine, more than you could eat. I, I don't know if there was even any limits back then, but um, they'd come back to the dock, and they'd just have bags. I remember the mesh bags just full of Maine lobster. And we'd have so many lobster, we'd give them to the other people that were hanging out at the marina. And the marina scene was totally different um, you know, in the 70s and the 80s compared to what it is now. I mean, you go to a big marina now and there's boats all over the place and you don't see anybody partying or hanging out or enjoying each other's company. In the old days, man, if you went down to Cape Ann Marina and it was a nice day, I mean, people were hanging out. People were coming in and going out on their boats and barbecuing and doing anything that they could. A lot of drinking went on in the 70s and 80s, a lot of drinking. I think maybe, well, stay away from the drinking thing. But a lot of drinking was going on back then. And people just enjoyed being at the marina. And when they got to the marinas, they partied. So having lobsters and multiple, you know, big bags of lobsters and being able to give them out. My dad became friends with a lot of people at uh, Cape Ann Marina. And back then, there was maybe 10, 12 boats that fished out of Cape Ann. And some of these dudes were, like, really heavy into sport fishing, and we had no clue about sport fishing then. Um, some of the boats to come to mind are the Cookie, which was owned by the Murray brothers. He makes the fighting chairs and all sorts of other fancy fishing equipment. Um, Sam Cardinelli on the Samana. He was out of New York. Really cool guy. Nice family. Um, he was really good at tuna fishing. And we had Joe Snooper. I can remember Joe Snooper. What a character. Loved that guy. Still friends with the son today. Son's living in Palm Beach. But the Snooper, he was a big deal. And then um, some real characters. Bob Lewis on The Lush Life. And um, that's who we first started, you know, becoming friends with down there in Massachusetts and Cape Ann Marina. The first time we got... Uh, exposed to any type of marine stuff. Now, I'd spend most of the time running around on the docks trying to catch flounder and crabs and stuff like that, eels, a lot of eels, uh, some striped bass, smelts. <laughs> I remember smelt fishing off the docks there. But anyway, that was our first experience um, to the marine world. And then my father, I don't know, people liked him not only because of the lobster, but he was just a good storyteller and fun to be around, and he often, you know, would make friends. And um, when he made friends, I mean, people really liked him. So it was, uh, it was a great opportunity to meet some of the best people in the marine world. But uh, he got friends with Sam Cardinelli. Man, Sam invited him to go out tuna fishing. And... uh They went out and caught a huge tuna fish. I want to say it was 1,100 pounds. I think it was a woman's world record. And they lost some other big ones. And my dad came home from that fishing trip, and he was a changed man. He wasn't thinking about diving and scuba diving and lobsters anymore. He's thinking about big bluefin tuna. So after that season at Cape Ann, my old man decided that uh, little Grady White that we'd camp out on was just not going to cut it. So he went out and he bought a sport fishing boat, a 33 foot Concord. And back in those days, the 33 foot convertible boat with twin, and they get 454s in there, was a you know was a decent sized boat. wasn't the biggest boat in the marina. I mean, there were some you know 43 Vikings and the Samana. I think was a 46 Andy Mortensen and. The Cookie, I think, had a Viking back then, or I can't remember exactly, but it was uh, maybe 45 feet. So having a 33-foot convertible, you know, it was a pretty decent-sized boat in the Cape Ann days and the late 70s. And he bought that boat because he wanted to get that blue tuna Rush. So he came home after fishing with Sam and was telling the stories and telling me about the boats he was going to try to buy and he found his boat and the very next season we're down there at cape ann and he don't know nothing about fishing i mean nothing me and my mom were fishing experts compared to him we would go down to the mill pond and catch sunfish and pickerel and crap like that and catfish my old man didn't even know how to bait a hook but he was searching for that adrenaline rush that he got with Sam Cardinelli when they caught those big fish the year before. So there was no stopping him. And if you knew my dad, you knew that he was had a drive to him. Once he got something in his mind, his drive was so powerful. Hence being a workaholic. <laughs> Hence being like an anal nut, like everything had to be perfect all the time. So when he got into sport fishing, um, of course, he tried to include the family. And the family would go out with him on nicer days and stuff like that. But up in New England, you know, there's a lot of days you fish when it's real shitty out. And mom and my brother, my sister, you know, they weren't quite into fishing every single day and going out no matter what. But I loved it. I thought it was great. So as my dad learned how to sport fish, I was his fishing partner. So I learned right alongside with, with, with my, my old man Joe, Joe Maggio. So Joe and I, we learned fishing together. And we started learning from the fleet at the Cape Ann Marina. And learning from those guys who were some of the best dudes in the industry or the best dudes in the game, we immediately started to try to achieve things to be on their level. So there was no, like, working our way up the ladder. It's like we started fishing, and we were fishing for 900-pound tunas. We didn't start with flounders and codfish and bluefish and stripers and then work our way up to the big game fish. The way my dad thought, it was all or nothing. He wanted to get those big game fish. So as he learned the game fish world and he learned how to catch big tuna, I learned right along with him, step by step, from nothing, from not knowing anything about fishing or the ocean. I started with him, and they'll call it 1977, 1978. I was approximately, you know, nine, ten years old. But on those rough days, you know, I had no problem being on the boat. All the hard work that it took to catch these big fish, I couldn't wait to do it. I was totally intrigued by learning the game. And I was doing this ass to ass partners with my dad. Now he had a couple of good friends up in New England um that he fished with, you know, Mickey Faola, another guy, George Markarian. I still fish with Mickey's son today. I take him out here, we make it a point to do a fishing trip at least once a year together. And um Those are my dad's fishing buddies up in New England. Now, they like to go, and they helped the best they could. But they were not infatuated by the whole thing. They didn't have the same passion my old man had for the whole thing. I mean, my my dad was obsessed with it. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't even think about it. All I know is if he went fishing, I was going to be right next to him. So we got through our first summer up there in New England and we got totally crushed by the tuna fish. I think we lost every fish that we hooked. We hooked quite a few fish and learned a lot of lessons, made all the mistakes. But because of my dad's drive and because of his passion for the fish, you know, after getting beat up that first season, it only made him more Eager to get out there the very next year to conquer the challenge, and we we tried to learn everything we could. We tried to learn all the tricks. We spent hours and hours, late nights together, painting fishing lines, doing rigs, practicing knots, doing the nooses for the tail ropes. Um, yeah, I mean, you just name it. You know, we were we were learning. And then that very next season, we went out there, and, and we had a decent season. I think we caught eight or nine bluefin. And um, we kept learning, and we kept learning. And then the following season, we did even better. But what was killing my old man at that point was the, se- the bluefin season in, in New England. You know, you start, I don't know, call it June. So you got June, July, August. And then you kind of wrap things up after the first week in September back then. All the beach houses would close. Everybody would get what they call winterized. They had to winterize your boat. So things would shut down, you know, definitely by October. And then you'd sit there and wait. Until the following May to get your boat out of storage to get your season in again. So this was driving my dad crazy crazy. So, him and my mom decided, screw this. We're going to move someplace where they can fish all the time. And they picked Fort Lauderdale. Luckiest thing that ever happened to me. My parents decided to move to Fort Lauderdale in 1977, 1978. And when they picked Fort Lauderdale, they picked it because my dad wanted to fish year round. We're reading books about Blue Marlin. We're reading books about yellowfin tuna. We're reading books about traveling through the Caribbean to catch sport fish. we were reading books, anything that we could come up with. We'd watch any TV show we could find. We'd do it together. We'd talk about it. We were into all the fishing magazines. We could not consume enough of it, and we did it together. So moving here to Fort Lauderdale we still had the dry cleaners up in the New England area my dad had a partner in that and my part the partners did good job of keeping it going so we had decent cash flow and my old man got a uh, a job with Rody craft in Pompano Beach back then selling criss crafts and um, he thought that that was a great way to uh, fish a lot and learn about boats and my dad was pretty cr- what do they call it? Charismatic? So he did very well in the boat sales at Roadie Chriscraft, Craft. And um, the boats he was selling were sport fishing boats. And back then, those days, you know, Criss Craft was really like uh, one of the better ones to get. The Venezuelans bought a lot of Criss Crafts and they bought a lot of Bertrams. And my dad got to know these Venezuelans and um, sold them to Chriscrafts Crafts and Developed relationships with them, and Then my dad started doing the boat shows with Rhodey Chrisscraft, you know, in the late seventies. And um, my dad really got into the boats, and he started meeting all these different fishermen, you know, and people came from all over the world to come to Fort Lauderdale by boats. So my dad was taking full advantage. And um, as he's making these relationships, what's going through his mind is, I need to build a boat. It's going to be able to fish bigger and better and faster. And that's just the way he thought. You know, it was always big and grandiose and you had to conquer the world. So in his mind, he's thinking about his next boat and how he's going to make the boat be the best fishing boat that was ever made. And um, he started building one. And it was a a 53 foot center console. All these huge center consoles today that are out there, they think they're so original and all that. My old man built a 53 center console in 1980-81. and he made it out of aluminum. It was the first boat to take, um, I think there were 1100 horsepower man engines, and a lot of the bigger boats back then were made out of aluminum. Strikers are made out of aluminum. All the speedboats are made out of aluminum. Aluminum fabrication was a big deal when building boats back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. So my dad decided that he was going to partner up with some people over at Magnum. And they built a 53-foot Magnum hull, similar to a Magnum hull, which he then converted into a 53-foot center console sport fishing machine. And, um, it was pretty fucking cool. It was pretty much one of the fastest boats ever made at that time for sport fishing. Totally unique. No one made a 53-foot center console at the time. And the fishing magazines and the boating magazines were all over it. The next thing you know, Some of these big money dudes, one guy named Bryant, another guy named Munson, they started paying attention to the project and they loved it and they wanted a piece of it and they wanted to give my dad money to make sure that this big boat that he was building was the biggest and the fastest and the coolest and all that kind of thing. So this team of people got that boat done, and the magazines absolutely freaking ate it up. It ended up being on the cover of multiple magazines. And I think it was Mark Sosin that wrote the article. But uh, back then, doing a helicopter shot of a boat was a big deal. And they were doing helicopter shots of the boat. And they were running around, and it was, you know, sporty out there, somewhere between 6 to 12 feet. And this boat is going through it and the sprays going everywhere, and they wrote that this boat was uh, looked like it was shaking the salt out of the ocean, so they named it Salt Shaker. So the Salt Shaker 53 was the beginning of a boat building phase for my old man that he then did for 40 years. And the 53 salt shaker put him on the map, not only as a fisherman, but also as a boat builder. And it's crazy how fast it happened. Because back then, everything was new. Everything was, uh, you know, the newest, the latest, the fastest. And then getting on the uh, cover of the magazines really excelled, you know, the, the boat building and the fishing and everything that went along with it. So by working with a lot of aluminum, my dad was still friends with the people that he sold boats to over the years. And when you bought a boat from Chris Craft or Bertram back then, um, they were only boat builders. They didn't have the accessories to make it a fishing boat necessarily. So my father started doing fishing accessories in the same plant that he was building the boats in. And we started making towers, um, tuna towers. And we made them for all the different sport fish boats. But guys would order their boats dead plain, bring them to Salt Shaker Custom Yachts. We'd put a tower on for them. We'd put the electronics in for them. We'd put the outriggers in for them. We'd put the teaser reels in for them. We'd put the bait wells in for them. mean, we totally pimped the boat out. To have the latest and greatest, the most innovative stuff for sport fishing. And my dad became friends with all the heavies in the sport fishing world. And then we started traveling all over the world to catch blue marlin. He did the tuna thing. He loved the tuna thing. But when he started catching blue marlin and billfish in the way the billfish world was back then it was a smaller way smaller community so you kind of knew everybody that was in it at least my dad did heck he was at every boat show he was at all the marinas people always asked him questions it was uh back then it was a, a necessity in the game to be to have somebody to be innovative which my dad was so good at but anyway we started blue marlin fishing um, in the 80s, big time. And the Venezuelans that were buying the criss-crafts and uh, started buying some bigger boats, and then they'd bring them to my old man to outfit them. And um, we would sh- ship the boats over to uh, Venezuela. And when I mean ship them, I mean drive them. It wasn't like today where you put, you know, 50-foot sport fish on some, you know, big ship with a crane, and then they'd take it over there for you. These guys were actually making the excursion from Fort Lauderdale to Venezuela, and um, we were invited or, to make the trip one time. And we loaded up. We sold a Venezuelan guy, George Morrison, a uh, it was a fifty-five Hatteras, which at that time was the cat's ass and the in the fishing world at 55 address is big luxurious nice fishing boat and there was a 13-wheeler they put up on the bow of that thing and we loaded that some bitch up along with a 38-foot Chris Craft called the Lococo that was uh, a guy named Gildo Bellini who happened to be one of the best or the best blue marlin fishermen in the world at the time so the two boats Get geared up to make the big trip from Fort Lauderdale to Venezuela. And um, we take the ride right along with them. And what an experience that it was. Because back then, you know, it was like uh, GPSs weren't the same. Communication wasn't the same. That was like a big adventure. That was like conquering, (laughs) you know, the Caribbean for the first time almost. I mean, it wasn't, but it felt that way. And then doing it for the first time, it really felt that way. And I was pretty young at the time, but pretty much changed my life. So not only did um, we make those excursions through the Caribbean to get to Venezuela, in Venezuela was... A group of guys that were really into marlin fishing. And I mean talking about marlin fishing, I mean like they they spoke about two things at the restaurants and the bars that we hung out in Venezuela. They talked about baseball. God, they were into baseball. And then they talked about the different guys that were marlin fishing. And my dad was good friends with these dudes. And my dad started competing in the world tournaments with these guys to catch blue marlin and back then there was a um, organization called the ILTA the International Light Tackle Association and you would compete in these tournaments with line classes you could fish you know 8 12 uh, 15 30 pound 50 pound line and then you would win according to the line classes and the how many fish you caught and that kind of thing So um, very competitive. And the Venezuelans were friggin' awesome at it. And Venezuela, at the time, was thriving. Their economy was one of the best in the world. And these dudes out of Caracas that were really into fishing were taking full advantage. And uh, they were fishing a lot. My dad became really good friends with Jill Dobellini. Gildo at the time was like walking around with uh, Tom Brady or something. When you rolled around anywhere in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, Siricao, uh, Dominican Republic, the Bahamas, if you were with Gildo Bellini, people recognized, they were like, man, that's that Marlin fisherman. And Gildo had probably half the records at the time and, was always a contender in the ILTA and was just the leader in the sport. My dad and him became very close. And we started fishing in the ILTA with him and the Venezuelan team. And we entered all sorts of tournaments. And most of the time, I was just there. I wasn't part of the tournament. But every once in a while, um, there was junior categories. And It was important for me to be on the boat because you could win the junior category. And there wasn't, you know, it was kind of unfair because there wasn't that many juniors in the tournaments. But it was something they did. And that's how I was able to be a part of it. But as my dad was learning about marlin fishing and learning from the best people in the entire world at the time, I was with him all the time. I was just a monkey on his back. I was like, I would not, not be there. And because of that, he put me in the, arena, in the arena with the best people in the world. I mean, one time we left Pompano Beach and we loaded up in this Sabreliner airplane. I should say jet, which was a huge deal back then. And I believe that guy, Joe Munson, owned the jet. Either Munson or Bryant, but both these guys were loaded. And um, they were under the sport fishing. So it was Munson and Bryant, Tom Green... Mark Sosin, my dad, myself. And I can't remember who the other dudes were that were in that jet that we went over to Venezuela and to fish the World Tournament. I think Sosin was there. Yeah, Sosin was there because he wrote about it. But anyway, we load up in this guy's jet and we roll over to Venezuela and this is like 1984, 85 maybe. And um, we're fishing the World Tournament and All the heavies in the industry are thinking about it, writing about it, a part of it. We're rolling with Gildo, and we were just on top of the world at the time and learning as fast as we could. And um, my dad became part of that Venezuelan team, went all around the world competing in the marlin tournaments and really became pretty good at marlin fishing. I mean, he was no Gildo Bellini, but for a gringo, (laughs) for some Italian out of the north end of Boston, He was doing pretty goddamn good. And I loved it. I I couldn't get enough. And then that's the way we grew up, fishing like that and building more boats. We built all these custom fishing boats. They would get bigger. They'd get faster. And then the more boats we built, the more people we met. And the more places around the world we were able to fish. And we did that up until, like, we'll call it 1995, Venezuela started going through some shit, and we started uh, losing our contacts there. And my dad and Jill DelBellini were such good friends that, you know, it really disturbed my old man that. Jildo wasn't part of his life anymore and the Venezuelans weren't fishing like they were. And he watched a lot of his friends, you know, start going through these really hard times. And it and it messed him up a bit as far as I don't know, mentally it just was tough on him to watch his friends go through this. And then we ended up not fishing with them. Um we still made, you know, stayed friends with some Puerto Ricans and some other people through the Caribbean that we fished a little bit, but the hardcore you know uh, Marlin tournament scene we only fished a few through the Bahamas after that for time at Treasure Key and Treasure Key was very similar um, we got introduced to Treasure Key through another fella named Rudy Wood who was one of my all time favorite people that ever I ever met Rudy Wood was this white Jamaican dude and he'd been over in Treasure Key I want to say since like the 60's or something like that and he bought a 25 foot mako and brought it to Salt Shaker for us to pimp it out for fishing and then he wanted to make the trip from Fort Lauderdale to Treasure Key in a 25 foot mako which back then was kind of a big deal. Back then, you know, your engines were like Johnson V8s that burnt like two gallons a mile or something, and um, just horrible efficiency. So to make it with a 25-foot boat, first thing you'd do is you'd go from Fort Lauderdale to uh, West End, which is about 80 miles. (laughs) and You were basically out out of fuel when you got there. So my dad packed up his sport fish he still had the 33 foot Concord at the time and um him and Rudy Wood got in the two boats and they made the trip together to go over to Treasure Key and um my dad bought a small house there and he started spending a lot of time with Rudy and um some of the marlin tournaments would roll through that part of the Caribbean, and we'd enter those, and we'd participate in that. But the fishery for blue marlin off of uh, the abacos, is it's a good fishery, but it's a lot different. I mean, you're not racking up the numbers like we did in Venezuela and Panama and Puerto Rico and some of these other places. And the challenge to catch a blue marlin, you, know, you had to put in a lot more time and effort and work, But my dad seemed to really like the fishing there. He liked the atmosphere there. And um, he settled there. That's where he wanted to sit back and sport fish and kind of get over the tournament scene and hang out with his buddy Rudy. And he made some other buddies over there. Mort Kaplan was another guy. And uh, as time went on, Of course, the guys that my dad was hanging out with wanted my dad to build them fishing boats. And my dad built a 30-foot center console called the Salt Shaker 30. And it was a badass little center console. At the time, it was the biggest center console you could buy. It had a 10-foot beam. The boat was approximately 10,000 pounds. But the big thing about it is we were able to put 300 gallons of fuel in a 30-foot center console. And it was totally gorgeous, pimped out. If you guys have never seen a Salt Shaker 30, I don't know, Google it, look it up. But my dad was doing stuff in the late 80s and early 90s with these Salt Shaker 30s that guys didn't catch on for 20 years. So having the big fuel tank in the boat was a big deal. But then he equipped the boat with Yamaha 200 engines, which at the time was totally out of whack with the industry. As a matter of fact, I can remember being at the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show and people actually laughing at us because we had Yamaha engines on the back of the boats. And at that time, there was a lot of people in the race industry, people that were into, uh, you know, boat engines. They were not thinking about efficiency. They were just thinking about speed and bore and horsepower. And they laughed at my old man because he put these twin 200. Yamahas on the back of a sport fishing boat. And I can remember them calling them rice burners and saying that boat's never going to get out of its own way. It's going to take you 10 minutes to get on plane, all this stuff. But the old man was did the calculations, and he was pretty tight with the Japanese engineers over at Yamaha. And they put these 200s on, a, on the salt shaker and the boat could cruise at like 32 miles an hour had a top end of, you know, like 45, which was a big deal in those days. But more importantly, we could take that boat from our house in Fort Lauderdale to our house in Treasure Key, which was a 200-mile run. And we could get there, and we could still have 100 gallons of fuel in the, in the boat, which was huge back then. Because when you got to Treasure Key or you got to the Abacos, you weren't even sure you were going to be able to get fuel when you got there. I mean, I can remember waiting at the Treasure Key Marina. I can remember waiting at Bimini. I can remember waiting at a lot of places for the fuel barge to get there because everybody was stuck because there was no fuel. And that's the way you'd roll around the Bahamas. When you got there, there wasn't telephones and stuff where you could call around and get information. You showed up and you got the hand you were dealt. So to have a boat that could go from our house to Fort Lauderdale to our house in Treasure Key, again, was state of the art. And that was the beginning of the big giant center console craze that you guys see now with all the intrepids and CVs and contenders and the different, you know, yellowfins and all that. Those things were all modeled after the original Salt Shaker 30. People will argue with you, but people don't know what the hell they're talking about. People that lived it, people that were here in Fort Lauderdale, people that watch boats get made and get used and displayed at the boat shows, no. But those people are old school at this time. So the Salt Shaker 30 changed everything. Originally my dad was making the boat for himself so he could make the trip. And then these guys that had a lot of dough, like Rudy and Morton stuff, they're like, man, Joe, that's a nice boat. And then we never actually even ended up getting to own a Salt Shaker 30 because my dad was a freak about building them. He'd build every single one with him and a small crew. And he wanted to know every little detail about every boat. And he learned this crap through Roy Merritt, who he used to be neighbors with in Pompano, the details and making the boat perfect and to balance the right weights, horsepower distributions was everything so these dudes that had dough by the time my dad would finish building the boat would offer him such a huge amount of money for these Salt Shaker 30s that he would just, you know, he would sell them and he'd start to build another one and this went on the Salt Shaker 30 went on for over 30 years where he built one boat a month for over 30 years of these Salt Shaker 30s and then, of course, it changed the industry. Totally changed the industry. As you can see, Yamahas are now a staple in the, in, in the industry, where they used to be not known. Getting the longevity in the traveling through the Caribbean on center console boats is the norm now. When my dad started doing it in the friggin' early 80s and mid-80s, it was unheard of to take small boats like that through the Caribbean but my dad was an innovator man and he was so into fishing and what he did for me because I learned step by step all the way through was never part not part of my life but what he did for me is he threw me in the biggest arenas in the fishing world at such a young age. And the way I grew up thinking about fishing and sport fishing was totally unique. I mean, there was a few kids out there that had the same experience, but not many. And my dad put me in the arena to fish with the best dudes in the world, some of the most respected fishermen even today. Frank Johnson from Molecraft was a good friend of his. George Pavarama was a good friend of his for years. My dad knew George Pavarama when he was a teenager. And he put me in the arena with all these people, and it became the norm. It became the norm to be the best fisherman and the most innovative and to go to the most unique places and fish with the most unique people in the world. It was a norm. I can't thank my dad enough for that. He put me on a level at a freaking high, at a a young age, that some will never even think about achieving. And his work ethic was second to none. My dad would work at whatever was on his mind. He gave it 100% and exhausted himself on the effort. Now I wasn't that much into the boat building stuff. I was just into the fishing. So I took that quality and applied it more to fishing than anything else. You talk about a mentor. He didn't just introduce me to the sport he put me in the seat of the fastest and the best and the most unique and the most innovative. That being the case, the next thing you know is I'm fishing on other people's boats and teaching them how to use their equipment, how to rig baits, drags, leaders, knots, I'm teaching some of the richest people in the world on how to fish. And I, wasn't even, I didn't even think anything of it. It was just what we did. And that's kind of how I ended up being a professional in the sport was I knew things and I could do things that the guys that had the dough did it. So my old man... He would be dealing with these guys, and the guy would want to fish a tournament somewhere, and he'd be like, hey, take Jeff with you. He'll show you how to do all that stuff. So the next thing you know, I'm with complete strangers on their boat, and I'm teaching them how to compete in marlin tournaments. Yeah, you know? And I'm freaking 20 years old. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm put in a position that most 20 year olds you know, didn't even know of never mind be put in there and my dad would do it with me over and over and over again and he would just keep throwing me in the arena with these guys that had the money they had the drive they wanted to catch fish and then at a very young age I was able to have a relationship with people that were twice my age that a lot of people are intimidated by And I was perfectly comfortable in the arena. That's something that most mentors could never do. You can teach people and you can do things, you can be a mentor, but being thrown in the arena and having to compete and having to perform constantly is something that my father did for me. I don't know if he knew he was doing it on purpose at the time But the value in it was unbelievable. I could sit down at a table with people twice my age and feel perfectly comfortable. And we could have conversations with people that had more money than anybody else. People that had more, um, what do you call it, drive to do these fishing excursions than anybody else. And I could sit there and I could have conversations with them and it would go back and forth until we basically fell asleep I mean we would sit around in places like Walker's Key I can remember sitting at the Panama Yacht Club in Panama City in not Panama, Florida but Panama, Panama and I'm hanging with Max Harari and what was the other guy's name? I want to say his name was George but these dudes basically ran the Yacht Club and were the fishermen at the Yacht Club in Panama and we hung out like we were friends. These guys were all twice my age. But like I said, my dad put me in that arena over and over and over again. I tried to take advantage. I loved it. I don't know if I was trying to take advantage or if I was just, you know, just rolling with it, but I could not get enough of it. And later on... You know, as I started to become more of a fishing pro and how I got into the inshore thing was I was hanging out with these offshore dudes and then we'd have days like it is today where it's blowing 30 and rainy and stuff. And I'd say to these guys, you know, I could take you fishing for big snooks and tarpon right here in the intercoastal. And then I started taking dudes to do that. And they had a blast. Now here I am 30 years later and I got a... A book full of people that want to catch tarpon and snook. And only me and my buddy Norm are doing a little bit of marlin fishing nowadays. But it's funny how life makes its turns. But being in the inshore game, very same thing. I mean, my dad was friends with George Copeland. He was friends with Tommy Green. He was friends with Mark Soson. He was friends with pretty much everybody. There was a... Oh... And Bob Flocken, Bob Flocken, who later on was a big part of that Ska tournament, he had a tackle shop here. And I'm on first name basis with these dudes, and these guys are the biggest heavies in the snook world. I wouldn't say I was f- necessarily friends with Mark Croca, but Mark Croca, who's one of the most famous guides in the Keys right now, fished right out of Fort Lauderdale, and when I was just, you know thinking about buying my first skiff for myself, I'd watch Kroka fish out here, and he had a Maverick back at the time. So growing up in this inshore fishing world was a natural development for being an inshore guide. And then to be a, a guide and know how to compete at like a crazy high level, I learned it all from my old man. But probably the most important thing that I ever learned from my dad was your relationships with people. You don't have to be their best friend or their best buddies all the time. Of course, you you have some of those. But you want to have a work ethic and you want to be able to perform at a level where they look at you and they respect you. My dad also taught me that it's important to have a good time with your competitors. Guys that you were in complete competition with for the most part were our friends. And that lesson there is valuable. Probably one of the most valuable things that I've ever learned. The camaraderie my dad built with some of the biggest heavies in the fishing world was the key to longevity. It was the key to progress. It was the key to enjoyment. It was being part of something that you enjoyed. It wasn't just a business. It was a fishing life. My father always wanted me to compete in the highest arenas. He encouraged me to go to St. Thomas Aquinas to play football. He encouraged me to play Division I in college. He encouraged me to get into business. He taught me that you can can, can compete with anybody if you give it 100% and you go in with the right mindset, and you give it your all. I learned firsthand from the best of the best of that. And how lucky am I for that to be my own man? Mentorship at its finest. Companionship at its finest. He taught me how to love the sport. He taught me how to love the people. He taught me how to love the world that we were in. I'll never be able to thank him enough for it. It was mentorship. It was mentorship at its finest. I hope you guys enjoyed the mentorship series. I could probably have done a couple more. But I wanted the 100th recording on the Real Guy podcast, on the Lunker Dog's Real Guy show, to be something different, to be something special, and to be a tribute to the guy that led the way for me. I hope you enjoyed... Hope you enjoyed, because I did, just thinking about it. Thanks for tuning in to the Real Guy Podcast. This is a podcast for real guys by real guys, and that's a wrap on the mentorship series. That's our 100th episode, and I'm excited, I'm proud that we got to 100, and I'm ready to do 100 more. Run that dog. This is Captain Jeff, the longer dog, and this is the Real Guy Podcast.